0: You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Our aim is to finish the chapter today. Peter has been giving instructions to God's people, exiles, about how to go on living as new people in Christ. Remember I said this several weeks ago now before Easter. It's a phrase I repeated often and it was this. God's new people do new things. Okay? So in our text and in the surrounding area here, more to the point Peter calls christians to to believe and live as if God actually exists, which would mean a change in the words that we speak and the things that we do that came from the tongues and feet sermon several weeks ago. The things that we say and the things that we do are changed god 's new people do new things, and Peter says that Christians are to honor Christ in their hearts and always be prepared to give a reasonable explanation for the hope that is in them, but to do it with gentleness and respect. That's what we looked at most recently. And the three kind of key parts of that were followers of Christ have to know Jesus, they have to know the Scriptures, and then they have to be ready to put their faith into action. We saw that from Peter's sermons last week. In the book of Acts, those three things really shine through. When we do those things, Peter says, in no uncertain terms, sometimes Christians will endure suffering. Our text for today, verses 17 through 22, are sandwiched right in between two other sections about suffering. Just look back at the titles in your Bible. First Peter 3, 13 through 18 is about suffering. Suffering for doing good. Chapter 4, verse 12 through 19, there's there's more that Peter is going to talk about suffering. And so that helps us to see and keep these things in perspective. What is the main idea that Peter is getting at? He uses some unusual pictures here, but what is he really getting at? Now, if you've read ahead, we're going to read these verses in just a moment. But if you are familiar with these, you heard what Jason say, this... There's some, some scriptures, some verses here that are just like question marks just pop over your head when you read them. I fully expect to see raised eyebrows, you know, heads kind of cocked to the side like what kind of a thing at this point. This is one of those sections of scripture that's not easily understood but I'll quote again what I quoted last week, last week from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture, including 1 Peter 3, these sections that we're in, these verses that we're in, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So that... The man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God has given his word to us to understand it and to believe it. And sometimes it takes hard study. Remember my encouragement last week that was very unflashy. One of the primary, if not the primary way that Christians can always be ready to give that reason for the hope that's within them is what? Study the Bible, know the Bible, and so in God's providence and grace, He's giving us the opportunity to put that into practice right away in these next few verses. So, my question for you is: Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, all right. We're just checking. Read with me, First Peter three seventeen through twenty two. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with angels authorities power and powers having been subjected to him would you pray with me again lord this is true of of every passage of the bible that we read but Certainly in difficult ones like this, Lord, we need your help. No man, no woman, despite their schooling, despite their intellect, can understand the things of God unless your spirit helps them, causes them to see it clearly. And so we're, we're, we're asking, we're begging you, Lord. Um, we're asking because we lack wisdom in this area and we need yours So granted according to your will in the measure that you would have for us today, Lord, not so that we would be um, caught up in, in being boastful of our understanding, Lord, but just so that we can even further honor Jesus Christ as holy as the Lord in our hearts. Because unless that is happening in my heart, I'm not going to go give a reasonable defense for the hope that's within me. And so I pray that you're working that out in our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's start with verse 17. This connects our our idea from last week and our idea this week. And really it, it, it ties what Peter's getting ready to say about suffering to the lifestyle of Christians. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So that has to do with our conduct, doing good or doing evil. What's what's happening in our lives? What are we doing? We've already talked about how suffering for doing evil isn't what God wants for his people because it it does the name of Christ no good and really does you no good because you actually deserve that. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, Peter says. And sometimes this is the part that's, not enjoyable, sometimes it's even God's will that Christians suffer. And we think, why on earth, how on earth could that be the case? This isn't what, this is what we'd like to forget in the suffering idea. Because it's glorious to think of our sin being fully paid by Christ on the cross. It's refreshing to know that God's Spirit dwells in us as his children. It's exciting to consider the delights waiting for us on the other side of glory, but we don't often like to consider how suffering is sometimes the will of God in a Christian's life. Uh, Very few Christian songs are written about this sort of thing. This isn't highlighted on Christian billboards that you might see along the highway, and most devotionals that you have probably leave this sort of thing out. They don't focus on the suffering of Christians and yet, this is a major primary theme of Peter's writings, his letters to the church. And so when Peter introduces the idea of suffering, and it sometimes being God's will for the Christian, he immediately draws our attention back to the suffering of Jesus. That's the first blank on your notes this morning. He immediately draws our attention back to the suffering of Christ. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered, so the suffering that we endure that may be the will of God in your life, you're not alone in. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Last week, uh, the Sunday school class that meets downstairs that Jason usually teaches, um, they, they we spend the first Sunday of every month just praying together specifically praying over the text that's going to be preached on in church that day. And we were praying through these verses last week, and I was just struck by the simplicity of the gospel message in verse 18. The righteous for the unrighteous. You put your own name in where it says unrighteous, because that's you, because that's me. The righteous Christ for the unrighteous rod. Christ in my place with the purpose of what? That he might bring us to God. The righteous Christ suffered. He was put to death in the flesh for the purpose of bringing unrighteous people to God. The righteous Christ endured suffering and death so that the unrighteous rod omis might be brought to God. Reconciled, made right with him. And so here's just the simple that's that's maybe one of the simplest gospel messages in, in Peter's writings. But here's the reasoning behind this. And you can probably relate to this. I've made mistakes. I've hurt people. I've done wrong things. I've lied. I've stolen. I've sinned. I am unrighteous. And being a sinner separates me from a holy God, a sinless God. And despite all of my best efforts, I can never be good enough To make it right with God on my own. To be made right with God on my own. Someone who isn't marked by sin has to do that for me. So Jesus, the only sinless person, did it. He suffered the punishment that I deserve on the cross. And through his sinless sacrifice, God's justice is accomplished and sin and death have been defeated. Christ the righteous took the place of Rodimus the unrighteous, put your name in that blank, and brought me to God. God accepts me now as righteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. It has been transferred, given to me. And so when God looks at one of his children, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ. Though Christ was put to death in the flesh, in the body, He was made alive by the Spirit, this verse tells us, through the Spirit, resurrected by the power of God. The unrighteous are brought to God, justified by Christ's sacrifice, and then are also made alive through God's Spirit forevermore. In just four short phrases, in verse 18, Peter has preached quite a sermon. The only way an unrighteous person is brought to God as righteous is through Christ's suffering. That's what Peter is saying here. This is a glorious truth about suffering and is something that we must keep in mind as we continue through the rest of the chapter. Verse 18, the the latter half of that says, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This spirit is important for where we go next. So what does he mean here, alive in the spirit? Well, Paul uses similar language in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, so who raised Christ from the dead? God the Father. If his spirit dwells in you, Paul says, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Same spirit Peter and Paul are discussing and talking about here. So dead in the flesh, but alive in the spirit is God's Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave. Okay? Are we, are we together so far? Because here's where it starts to get a little interesting. Christians, theologians, Bible scholars, pastors, entire denominations have offered explanations throughout the centuries as to what Peter is talking about in verses 19 and 20. Even Martin Luther said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Martin Luther didn't really understand this, but I think God has given us some clues in his word. There's still a lot of uncertainty, and if we get to the end of this and you have a different view than me, I'm happy to discuss it with you. Now, I told you that God was going to give us a chance to do some hard study in his word, right? Well, if it starts today. Here it is. So here's just an overarching idea. What do we do when we come to a text like this? Because there's others, but this is the one we're in today. What do we do when we come to a text that's just confusing, where we don't understand, where lots of other people that we listen to don't understand fully either? What do we do? Well, I think there's some helpful advice that has been given that kind of addresses this. When we get to a challenging text, start by just taking a step back from all the uncertainties and ask, what is clear okay so yeah there's a lot of questions here of what exactly he means in different areas but what do we know is clear what's the main idea that the author is wanting to communicate in this section not just in the particular verses that are troublesome but in the whole section because they're a part of a larger writing another question to ask is does the author give us any clues as to what main idea he's getting at if that's not entirely clear at first are there any clues and then not lastly but next can we draw solid truth from what we understand for our life okay so we we've, we've taken a step back and let's let's implement some of these things this morning read verse 18b through 20 with me again cuz these generate the most questions Peter says, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So we have our work cut out for us today. Remember, Peter has just told Christians, you're not supposed to just provide a feeling to people for the hope that's within you, right? We're supposed to provide them with a reason. And so as Christians, we can't just be sentimental all the time. There's a place for that. We're supposed to be uh, kind and, and merciful, but we can't just be driven by emotions. If that's the foundation of our faith, then it will be easily eroded and quickly shaken. And so we have to have firm footing and to be able to offer a reason to people. J.I. Packer is one of my favorite authors. He describes feeling-based, sentimental Christians like this. He's got a book called *The Quest for Godliness, and he says, they value strong feelings above deep thoughts. They have little taste for solid study, humble self-examination, disciplined meditation, and unspectacular hard work in their callings and the prayers. They conceive the Christian life as one of extraordinary, exciting experiences rather than of resolute, rational righteousness. Now that's heavy, and certainly we've all been at the first half of that where we're driven by emotions, but hopefully our goal and our desire is to look more like the last half of that where we have this resolute, rational righteousness that we're pursuing. And we can't do that if we just read a verse like this and skip over it quickly. And so I'm really thankful for the work of our pastors, of our Sunday school teachers, of our small group leaders who don't skip over hard books like Leviticus and Ecclesiastes, who don't skip over difficult topics like gender identity, and other things that are going on in our world today. Have you guys ever been, I was going to show you a picture, but not working, but have you ever been to Elephant Rocks State Park in southern Missouri? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. It's one of my favorite places in the whole state. And there's walking trails, so you can get up there fairly easily. But if you just, like I did when I first went there as a 20-something-year-old, if you just run straight up it, it's, it's kind of a workout. Okay. Now it's not a mountain where you know you have to to get your belaying on and all that stuff, but it's it's a diff, it's a difficult task. And when you get to the top, like most pinnacles of high things, you're rewarded with an incredible view. There's big rocks up there, bigger than elephants, um, some that look like elephants. is Why it's got its name. It's just a really neat place. If you're looking for a place to go, go see it. But looking at the, looking at a picture of it online, isn't the same thing as going to this place, right? So if I showed you a picture, I'd say, "Look, here's Elephant Rocks." Now you don't have to go. You saw it. Eh, it's not quite the same thing, is it? Going and experiencing it, you know, the little the little sunburn you get, the sweat in your eyes. Sometimes your feet slip on the trail. Smelling the fresh air, hearing the birds like encouraging you on as you go. These are all things that you miss when you just look at a picture of it. So maybe the challenges of getting to the top don't take away from the beauty of it all. Maybe they add to the beauty of it all. Maybe they don't take away from getting to where you want to go. Maybe they are a part of the beauty of the journey of it. That's how I hope we're going to view this text today. It's hard work, don't get me wrong, but we're not going to pass over it just because it's hard. The beauty of the top can't be fully enjoyed just by looking at a picture or taking the easy way. So we're figuratively lacing up our climbing shoes today and preparing for the challenges of the journey. Let's continue. Verses 18 and 19 say that the same spirit that made Christ alive. So the spirit by which he was raised is the one that he then went and proclaimed by. And so this is where the questions really start to snowball. Well, what did he proclaim? When is this proclaiming taking place? Was it during the days of Noah? Was it between Christ's death and resurrection? To whom did he proclaim these things? Who were the spirits in prison? Were they, were they human spirits were they fallen angels or demons? Disobedient angels in the days of Noah, possibly? There's a lot of questions here, and it's good to sift through these. Uh, biblical scholar Thomas Schreiner kind of laid out in, in good form three of the main kind of understandings or views of what this is talking about. I just want to really quickly go through them. I tried to leave some space in your notes rather than just keep all of my notes in there for you to kind of jot down some things you feel like are important in your understanding of this. So there's space in your notes. Here's number one, the first most common one of the most common understandings is that this all refers to Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over evil spirits or angels in hell. Some people look to a couple of verses in the future. First Peter three, verse 22 it says who has gone Into heaven, this is speaking of Christ, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So these angels, authorities, powers would then refer back to the proclamation to these angelic spirits in prison, ones specifically, Peter says, that were disobedient in the days of Noah. So people with this kind of viewpoint usually view the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 As disobedient fallen angels who intermarried with the uh, daughters of men. Jude chapter 1 verse 6 says the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So there's some biblical reasons why people have this view. So these disobedient spirits then were these spirits in prison that Jesus made proclamation to. So just so we're all together, these spirits were alive in the days of Noah, but were disobedient, went to hell. And now Jesus, after his death, before his resurrection, has traveled to hell to proclaim to them the gospel and his victory over everything, right? Subjected, all things were subjected to him. So Jesus went and made proclamation to these spirits in prison. The Greek word for uh, proclaimed or preached means to publicly declare or to herald. So if the spirits then are fallen the angels or demons, then Peter says that Jesus went to hell or the abode of the dead or Sheol and he proclaimed his victory there to those fallen angels. He wasn't preaching the gospel message for them to be saved. He was preaching victory is what this view would say. They had lost. Their choice to follow darkness would never be the right choice. He's confirmed it by his death and would soon affirm it again by his resurrection. The cross triumphs over all. That's what they would say in the end of this. That's view number one. The second view refers to spirits as Old Testament saints who died and were therefore liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, this is reflected in the Apostles' Creed. I'm not going to quote it for you, but you can go home and Google that, and you'll see that he descended into hell. That's part of what, what people say, part of what that creed says. It comes from that verse in Ephesians 4, 8, 9. So this view would say that Christ went to prison after his death, before his resurrection, where the spirits who had died in the Old Testament, saints, spirits of the saints who had died, were being held captive. And in Jesus' going, he preached the gospel message to them, Because they had at some point, in some ways, been disobedient in the Old Testament. Those saints had believed and were confirmed as saints in Jesus' preaching and were then liberated from hell and taken to heaven. That's the second view. One of the third very common views is that this refers to Christ preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. 1 Peter chapter 1 Verses 10 and 11, concerning this salvation, the prophets, who Noah would be one of them, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them, the prophets, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So in 1 Peter 1, Peter has already kind of addressed this issue. And so I think this is a good example from Peter himself that teaches that Christ in his spirit was speaking in and through the prophets, Noah being one of them, and preaching things that were to come. So Christ in the spirit spoke through Noah and proclaimed to the spirits who are now in prison because they refused to believe or obey the spirit-filled preaching in the days of Noah. Now there's actually a fourth perspective. Uh, that believes that the spirits in prison actually refer to the Jewish people of Peter's day. Uh, they are people, even today, who are held captive by their sin, kind of like somebody is held captive in prison. I don't think that view ever really addresses the issue of Peter's reference to Noah, so I didn't really count it in here. So what do we do with all of this? That felt like a maybe a classroom setting. I apologize if you got bored during it, but what do we do with all of this? It'd be a lot easier to just get on your phone, Google your favorite pastor besides me, and find out what they have to say about it, right? What do they have to say about First Peter 3, 18, 19, and 20? but we wouldn't really be putting on our climbing shoes and scaling to the top of the hill, would we? We'd be taking somebody else's word for it and just kind of looking at their picture. And we don't want to do that. We'd lose out on so much if we do that. So I'm just going to quickly kind of go through these three views again. If you've got space in your notes, you want to continue to jot some things down, you're welcome to here. We're going to do this quickly. The first view, I think, really greatly depends on your interpretation of Genesis six, where, uh, you know, the, the the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarry. There's some things there that are even confusing in and of their own right. But if you interpret the the text in Genesis six that way, that these are fallen angels intermarrying with human women, then this view could make sense. And I, I know there are uh, pretty popular Bible scholars that I respect and admire who have this, that view. But if you view the sons of men a little differently, maybe you view that as the lineage of Seth who maintained their integrity. Maybe you understand the daughters of men to represent more of the descendants of Cain who were pretty morally corrupt. Well, then view one doesn't make as much sense anymore. View two says that the Old Testament saints were waiting in some kind of limbo. It wasn't the punishment of hell. It was some kind of you know, side room somewhere, I guess, um, where Jesus went and preached the gospel to them, but they had to wait there between their death and between the time that Jesus died for him to come. That idea of the second view really didn't even come about until about uh, 300 years after Christ in the Catholic Church. I think Paul himself refutes view two in the book of Romans. He teaches there that the moment a person places their faith and trust in Christ, they have been justified by God's grace through Jesus. And so Paul makes this case by going all the way back to Abraham, saying that he was counted righteous the moment he believed the promise of God. You can see that in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. So interestingly, I read this this week, that the work of God is applied both backward and forward. Okay? So consider that with me. The work of God is applied both backward and forward. So old Set, Old Testament saints trusted in the future promises that they didn't end up seeing it, it with their own eyes. We today trust the already fulfilled promise that happened in Christ on the cross. And so God's God applies the work of Jesus both backward and forward from the cross. The first two views, I don't think, also take into account what Jesus said to the thief on the cross as the thief believed. believed, And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. How could Jesus preach in hell if he was with this man in paradise? Which leads us to the third view, which kind of proposes that Christ was speaking through the Spirit, by the Spirit, in the Spirit, to disobedient people in the days of Noah during that time, hundred years or so while Noah was building the ark. This puts the spirit of Christ preaching through Noah in his day and in paradise after his death on the cross, not, not preaching in hell. So this seems to simplify that problem. Think too back to Jesus' last words on the cross. What did he say? It is finished. It's finished. If there was more work to be done in preaching, his work wasn't quite finished yet. But he said it is finished. It was fully paid. It was done. There was no more need to go and do anything. So let me ask the question again that we kind of asked at the beginning. What is the main idea that Peter is trying to communicate to us here? Because lots of people, and we could easily get get lost in, in these the thicket here, and the interpretation, and and there's a lot more that we didn't even go into. But what is his main idea? Remember I said that this text is, is sandwiched between Peter's writings on suffering. But then in verse 21, I don't know if this hurts or helps the situation, but Peter starts talking about baptism. He says that baptism corresponds to this. So what is the this? This is, I think, being the ark by which eight people were saved, were brought safely through water. So Peter seems to be picking up on the idea of the safe passage of a few, eight faithful people through water. That's kind of the big idea here. Peter says this is a picture. This is a foreshadowing of baptism. And all of this in spite of the judgment that was looming. The great flood in Noah's day. So I think... I think this picture of Noah and the eight who were saved and the flood and judgment, I think this picture came to Peter's mind because compared to the whole population of the Roman Empire and of the world, the church in that day felt like eight little people. The flood of persecution raining down on them. Just eight little people. Look forward to 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So just like the rain fell in the days of Noah, and it being the judgment of God... So Peter sees God's judgment coming on all mankind another day soon. The water that saved Noah and his family saved them because they believed God and put their trust in his promise to save them by building the ark. And they did it. And Peter says that if the righteous are scarcely saved, and I think he's referring back to Noah and his family, if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the godly? The sinner? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Those questions, I don't think they should haunt us, but they should resonate in our minds a bit here. One commentator I read this week said, With no faith-built ark in which to ride safely, the sinners perished in the mighty waters, which to Noah and his family were the pathway of deliverance. You see what he's saying? The same water that saved Noah and his family because they believed God was the judgment on those who didn't. So we can we can discuss, we can debate what exactly these difficult verses mean in their entirety. But I don't think Peter intended his big idea here to be some kind of spiritual Rubik's Cube for us to try to figure out for centuries. I don't think that was the point. I don't think he had that in mind when he said these things to the church. I think his big idea is that no matter how massive the judgment that's coming, whether it be a worldwide flood, whether it be intense persecution, whether it be opposition from disobedient people, no matter what the massive judgment that's coming, God can and will save his people, even in some of the most stunning ways imaginable. God's people then are to take heart no matter how great the opposition or persecution. There was hope that many in the lost world around them would be won by their steadfastness in doing good. That's what Peter was, has been encouraging, encouraging them to do, right? Be different. Be holy. You're set apart. God's new people do new things. You don't speak the same way. You don't do the same things. And in your faithfulness in doing those things, it's as if you're like Noah. Pounding the nails into the ark for a hundred years. Boldly proclaiming, this may not look like it makes sense, but judgment is on the way. And you need to be saved. Christ, this is an encouragement I want to give because I think Peter implies this in the text, but Jesus didn't send his followers on this hopeless quest when he said, go into all the world and teach and baptize and make disciples. It wasn't like this thing that we could never accomplish Peter wasn't telling us to go and build another ark either. He was just telling us to direct people to salvation in Christ alone. The same message that Noah was preaching for those hundred years. Look at verse 22, two. First Peter 3. This verse assures us that the ultimate victor, despite judgment and persecution, is Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter's great assurance to the Christian here is the same great assurance that Jesus left us in the Great Commission. Jesus rules over all. He has authority. So even though your situation may involve suffering, it may involve persecution, according to the will of God... Even though those things are true, Jesus is in control of all. Jesus rules over all. And not only that, but He has tasted far more suffering than any of us ever will. And He's done it in our place. Matthew 28, the Great Commission says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. So because of, because Jesus rules over all, We have confidence to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, here's another assurance, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's not only that Jesus rules, but he's always with his people too. It's not just that he's over all, but he's with his people. In the suffering, Jesus is with His people. In judgment, Jesus is with His people. In fact, He has endured it in our place. Remember? the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Your salvation is paid by the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. And He did it willingly to bring you God, My prayer, our hope as a church, is that every person that's listening today would be brought near to God by putting their faith fully in Jesus and on nothing else. Friends, Peter is saying, you may feel like eight out of six billion or however many people are in the world. You may feel overwhelmed, but God will never let you Be completely overwhelmed. You, Paul says, might be broken, might be bruised, but not so far that he's without hope. And that's the same for us. And I think that's the point of, the big point of Peter in these verses is that we always have hope. But let these, let these questions from verse 17 and 18 of chapter four resonate in our minds as we consider God's great gift to us in Jesus on the cross. What will be the outcome? of those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the godly and the sinner? That that motivates us, along with the Great Commission, to go and to preach and to live as if God is real and really loves you and you really love him because it's a witness to the world. And in God's providence, many are brought to faith through that means. Let's pray. Lord, may that still be the case. We're actually assured from your word that it is. And so we have confidence and hope, as we sang earlier, that, Lord, if if we get through, if we have peace in the storm, if we're able to live righteously, Lord, it's not because of how good we are. It's all because of Christ. The one who, in our place, endured the nails so that we might be brought near. So God, may we be brought near to your throne in salvation and then even today in your spirit. May your spirit dwell within us, fill us, excite us with the gospel message that is so simple, as simple as saying the the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. May we go with a similar message and a similar reason for the hope That's within us. We thank you that Jesus is that hope. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.